I'm commissioned for a mission to deliver a word to the church, the body. And I believe that the Lord is going to help me to do it. I'm a conduit. I'm a fallible dealing with the infallible. I'm a mortal delivering the words of the immortal. I'm a finite passing out the bread of life. Jesus said, the words that I speak in you, they are spirit and they are life. That's right. We're not living, we're not worshiping or reading a dead Bible. We're reading a living Bible. Alive. It's not a book that's covered by leather. It's the word of God that gives life and strength. Every word of God, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's how we live. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I'm reading from the book of Mark, chapter 14. The last portion of the chapter, verse 67. I'm reaching into the context Jesus has already been taken. In prayer, they came upon him at night and Judas has betrayed him. They will arrest him and walk him down the Kidron Valley up through the other side and end up in the house of Caiaphas. And then to Herod and then and then to Pilate, then to Herod, then to Pilate again. And in the courtyard we now see that one followed Jesus. Peter seeking out the glimpse of the captured Savior his rabbi the master and someone sees the Lord another gospel writer says a damsel she saw Peter verse verse 67 warming himself She looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not. I don't even understand what you're talking about, what you're saying. He went out to the porch. The rooster crowed. The maid saw him again, began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. He denied it again. And a little after they stood by, said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. 
And he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom he speak. And I preach, I don't know him. Now, Father, we need your help tonight. Your presence is powerfully present and you are real and you are in this room. You've come tonight to minister to your people. And I thank you for giving us joy. I thank you for giving us healing and the Holy Ghost. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would anoint all of us to hear the word and to receive it with our whole hearts. And I thank you, Lord, for this church. Somehow in your omniscient ways, you've decided to have a church on this corner. It's a crossroads of America. And people are coming to the crossroads of their life. I pray, Lord, that there'd be a city set on a hill hundreds of cities in this one place that our lives would shine out and that while people are driving down this highway 40 they would feel something as they pass by even right now let the spirit of god let it move out into the highways of chamberlain and 40 lord let people just be drawn to it to feel there's something there we lift you up lord i preach your word that you provided So I pray, Lord, anoint me to do your work, even in this time. And I pray for every mind that's been difficult to capture. I pray all the thoughts. I pray against all the media devices that's going to interrupt this service and this word. I pray against all of that. I pray for a focused spirit of all the people that are in here tonight. I pray against all clamor, all things that divide and separate the body of Christ and I pray Lord for unity and the spirit of unity and faith and love compassion, forgiveness I pray for a unified effort in this body, let mercy permeate the mouths and the minds of your people of this church in Jesus name And now let your word, Lord, speak into our hearts and let a decision be made tonight. Somebody speak his name. Mm. Come on, somebody say his name. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Uh, If you don't mind, put your hand on someone close by and just begin to pray with them together for the presence of God. Manifestations of the Spirit. Pray for many ministries of reconciliation and ministries of... Pray for discipleship. Pray for strength, Lord. That's right, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. That's good. Those prayers are right. That's the right prayer.
Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, choir. Thank you for powerful worship. D.L. Moody once said of the scripture that I read to you that he supposed Peter had changed the manner of his speech to distance himself from the Lord. You could imagine for a moment, or at least that moment, if you could put yourself in his shoes. A week prior, the city was shouting out, Hosanna, blessed be the one who cometh in the name of the Lord. And now... Everything has changed. And Peter is distraught because he knows that the Lord has been taken as a criminal. And perhaps Peter knows that he would be guilty by association. So Moody would say that the cursing, another gospel would submit a solemn oath, a swearing was not indicative of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter is well known as one who stood up with the Lord and beside him. Only now darkness, that midnight sky, gives him a little shade against the popular appearance Peter is also from Galilee, which might indicate a different accent. His speech has betrayed him. And regardless of his attempts to strike an opposing pose, this eldest disciple has been identified as one of them. So he acts quickly and takes on their disposition in order to blend in with those who are pressuring him, that's been mounted against him. He will, in a blink, relinquish his true convictions and in another he will say I don't even know who you're talking about he'll offer them a solemn oath and then a cursing and a change of conduct Peter will move from loyalty to denial in a matter of moments when the pressure mounts like a towering wave Peter the boaster becomes bashful Peter who denounced his own denial, I'll never deny you, finds himself standing alone in a crowd of unbelievers. And I say that it's a lot easier to boast in the church than to stand alone in the world. Testimonies come off so grand when they're supported by the saints, the collective. But try hiding in the night when no one cares. They're filled with hate and rage. Peter, it's easy to judge him. His story has been written, preached about, painted in motifs and musicals and playwrights and pictures. He's been dissected more than a high school frog. Hmm. Poor guy. All I know is that in the night, pressed for an answer from an angry mob, letting your light shine is no easy task. 
And the more you're known, the more pressing there will be. Remember this, everyone. This is a good place to practice your praise. This is the right place to shout for joy and sing unto the Lord. If you can't do it here, if you can't make it here, you won't make it when you find yourself up against hateful people who despise the name you're singing about and say you love. So I would just submit to you, take every opportunity and shout your heart out. Shout till your feet hurt and your knees ache. Do it while you have the opportunity in a safe place. When we come on Sunday night, we ought not be reserved. When we come on Sunday night, we ought not, Sunday morning, we ought not be reserved. This is the place where we can have abundant joy and praise without worry about anybody else. Nobody's wondering why you're praising God or shouting or dancing. Nobody cares about that. In fact, this is the place to exercise your praise. If there's ever a place in your life to sing and clap and shout, this is the house to do it. And if you can't do it here, you'll never do it anywhere else. I don't want anybody telling me, well, when it comes time, I'll stand up for Jesus. You ought to be standing up for the Lord right now. It's never been easier than right here where you are. When you get out there, they'll think you're crazy. When you get in here and you do it, everybody say, boy, I wish I could do that. Uh-huh. When it came time to make himself known, Peter was emphatic. I... Do not know him, he said. I have no relationship with him. I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't know him. Lest he become scorned and rebuked himself, or worse yet, crucified alongside the Lord. Peter had to change his tune and that quickly. They knew who he was. He made himself known too many times. He traveled Jesus too many miles. Peter had been beside the Lord too often to hide even in the midnight hour, so to save himself. He had to make a bold and long-lasting impression that left no doubt that he, in fact, was on their side. They needed to know that he was not just disassociated with Jesus, but that he was with them, that he held their hatred. So when he said, I don't know him, I never knew him. He was identifying with them. I'm on your side. Jesus from Nazareth. He's a criminal. And the message of the Lord to them was divisive to their culture. His name, ladies and gentlemen, was despised. They hated the fact that his name was spread throughout all of Judea. The good that the Lord had done was turned to evil. And in that moment, anyone affiliated with this Jesus would share in the same judgment inflicted upon Jesus. And Peter knew that. Jesus, the deliverer, the teacher, the preacher, was now on trial. And Peter felt he had to save himself. Murderers were going to be set free. The most vile and corrupt man in Jerusalem was about to be embraced. But Jesus was going to be killed. The worst of society was going to be lifted up. And Jesus was going to be put down. (laughs) The Lord, his teachings, his lifestyle, all who followed him, they were going to be reviled. The crowd, they had their own religion. 
Society in that day had its own thought. Anyone who opposed it must be dangerous. They thought that Jesus was a danger to them. And then the disciples must be also. To be identified as a disciple of Jesus meant to die. And Peter knew that. So he said, I don't know him. And in a single sentence, he aligned himself with all of them. And he threw away the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. For when Jesus asked his disciples earlier on, who do men say that I am? They all said, well, some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're a teacher. Some say you might even be Elijah. But when Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? Peter rightly answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, son of Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. It was a divine revelation sent from the father. The only way Peter could have known the truth was that it was given from above. Peter had the conviction of it. He had other convictions too. The Lord said a hard saying and many disciples walked away. And then the Lord turned to his 12 and said, will you also go? It was Peter who said, Lord, where are we going to go? Who will take us? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes. But the pressure cooker which was a society bent on hate and division and the low depths of carnality, a community who wanted religion without obedience. They wanted sin without shame. They forced Peter to step out of the darkness and when he did, he wilted and he said, I don't know him. I never knew him. I have no relationship with him. I don't even know who you're talking about. He forsook his convictions so that what he said at the start and believed at the start, he now denounced in the moment. When he was presented with the fellowship of sufferings of Christ, he chose the side of the accuser. In all reality, Peter flipped sides. He put on their garments of anger and corruption. He used their language, tried to emulate them. Whatever the definition of whirling worldliness was at that moment he jumped headfirst into it he needed to act like the world he needed an immediate and sudden makeover he used his words at first a denial a scoff i don't know who you're talking about as if all the news of the lord had never entered his mind as if the profound works of the master had never been known to him i don't even know of this healings i don't know of any of his miracles i've never heard of him i have no relationship with him but he was pressed and when he was pressed He changed stories because that is what they did to him. They pressed him. They wanted him to stand out or be completely opposed to Jesus. There was no middle ground. Think quickly now. Peter had to either identify as a follower of the Lord or he had to become a member of the collective thought. Either he was going to be branded or he was going to be an opponent. No middle ground. They pressed him. They pushed him. And he said... I don't know him. I never did. They wanted him to denounce what he had done. They were used of the devil to turn him. Just moments before, Peter had drawn his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. It was Peter who was bold in the garden. But boldness in the garden with Jesus is far different than boldness in the darkness with the world. 
And Peter became listless. He changed himself so that he would not be seen as the man who once wielded the sword. Even if he was reckless, he had to present himself in regret as if he never had or held a defense of the Lord. From days of glory to nights of fear, it's a fast fall. From parables and sound doctrine to cursing and bad behavior and denial, Peter was in a precipitous plunge. The heat in the courtyard of the high priest seemed so far now from the cool winds of Tiberius. They needed to know And that right quickly, that he was with them, not with him. That he thought like them. That he talked like them. That he conducted his life like them. That not only was he he was in regret to have been with the Lord, but he despised the Lord. I just don't know anything about him. Though he once led others when the tide changed and Jesus was bound, He went with the crowd. Now I know Peter repented and he came back, but he's only one of the lucky ones. Satan, Jesus said, has desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. Someone is here, someone is listening to this, and the Spirit is speaking to you. You love the Word of God. It's a sharp, two-edged sword, and you use it. The Lord called you, hear me, to be a disciple, and you followed. But the world is pressing down. You feel the flames of conversation pulling you in, pressing you to be like them. They scorn anyone who stands for purity and holiness. They want you to look like them, to live like them, to talk like them. If you oppose them, they'll shame you. If you live differently than them, they'll call you hateful. Your purity is on the line. Your faith in a holy God is being mocked every day. Your standards are going to be challenged more and more because that is the nature of the night. And I get it. If you didn't know, but I'm preaching to those who do know. I looked it up. An old man once wrote a book. I won't call his name. He said that his father died right before he was born, right before he was born. And he mourned. He lived without instruction that he wished he had been given. But he said, dad died right before I was born. So I never knew him. An elderly woman talked about the harsh conditions of Europe. She said, when I was a baby, my father went off to World War II. And I grew up in a small family of girls. We needed our dad, but our father was gone. I never knew him. Another account, two brothers were once interviewed about their lack of examples in their life. They said, our parents divorced. We live with our grandmother. Our dad brought us over. The three of us went, we lived with our grandmother. Our mother left us and never came back when we were very small. We don't remember her. We never knew her. Just a few pictures. But not so with Peter and not so with you. Peter was called to be a disciple in a fisherman's boat. He was ordained to be an apostle by the walking word of truth. Peter had a relationship with the incarnate God. But when his world demanded an answer, Peter said, I never knew him. I don't know him. The Bible says it this way. Read the Bible. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. It had been better. Who wrote that? Peter wrote it. 
No one understood those words better than the man who walked away, who gave into the pressures of his own society. He left it because he smelled vengeance coming his way. And Peter said, it would have been better to never have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and forsaken it and turned away. He knew it because he knew the damage that it could do. I'm so glad I'm married. This is a great day to be married. People are getting married. People are getting married having babies. <laughs> I've dedicated a lot of babies. It's going to be fine until <clears throat> one of those babies that I dedicate, dedicated years ago, grow up, gets married and has been. Now that's going to be a problem for me. Might I turn your attention, ladies and gentlemen, to the screen and to what I have in my hand. What a great book. Joshua Harris. Here's the title of this powerful book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I love this. This is great. I'm glad I'm married. I kissed Aiden goodbye too. I'd like to read a little, just do a small book report for you from Joshua Harris. I kissed Aiden goodbye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Harris is on a, I don't know why, but he got on a television show. He, He says in page 26, that he went to a television show called Politically Incorrect. Now the host's name is Bill Maher, and he writes, an irreverent and sharp-tongued former stand-up comic. And they discuss politics and current issues. So Mr. Maher has Joshua Harris on his show. It's a very fast-paced, very sarcastic tone, he says. He said, I knew I was getting myself into trouble. It was harder than I expected. I cringed, he said, when I walked on the stage and the announcer introduced me as the anti-dating activist. Here's the other guests that were on the stage. Stephen Wright. He's a comedian. He's a deadpan humor comedian. One of the funniest guys you'll ever hear, Stephen Wright. Yeah, he's the guy who always asks, what do you mix with, with powdered water? Stephen Wright, he said, he said one time, Stephen Wright said one time that he found out that most most Accidents uh, happened five miles from home, so he moved. <laughs> Stephen Wright. And then Chris, Christine O'Donnell, I don't know who that is. And then another actor, Ben Affleck. He writes, an actor whose good looks and rising stardom are the sole reason thousands of teenage girls would be tuning in that night. The cameras rolled. And he said, God, please don't let me say anything dumb. And then Bill Maher looked at me. Let's talk a little bit about your book, he said. He's holding up. It's very provocative, very interesting. Basically, your thesis is that the best way to find the person of your dream is to stop dating. Everybody laughed. Ben Affleck interrupted. How are you going to find the person of your dreams if you stop dating? He's trying to interject. Here's the goal. We, we, we're talking about courtship, he says. And then Bill interrupts. Why does commitment have to be the goal? Well, what are the options? What about commitment? And then Bill, he's irritated. What about a man and a woman? They don't want commitment. Can't they just have fun? Ooh, that's a good page. Let me just skip ahead. This is great. Self-control isn't enough. 
This is self-control isn't enough. Alexander, I have your book. I, sorry, honey, I highlighted all kinds of stuff. It's not a subtle message, but it could be the Lord. I'll give it back to you after service. <laughs> I, he writes, I once heard a youth minister speak on the topic of love and sex. He told about two strong Christians who were active in their youth group, Ben and Lisa, but they started dating innocently until, you know, each night they would go to the movies and then rounds of putt-putt, but their, their relationship got physical and it began to accelerate and they ended up sleeping together and then they broke up and they were discouraged and they were hurt. They have wounds that still, he writes, still hasn't healed. He denounces sex outside of marriage. Can you believe that? Joshua Harris, powerful. Best-selling book. Here's another one. Set your standards too high. Hmm, that's good. Because everybody I hear now wants to lower the standard. We got no child left behind in the church. What a joke. You put your standards way up there. Put them as high as you, in fact, so high you can't even reach them. And then strive for them. Set, set your commitment to coming to church so high that you have to have 104 temperature. We have to tell you, stay home. That you're carrying a little regurgitation bag. <laughs> and the ushers at the front say, we want to pray for you from afar. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people set their standards so low if they got a little nick or bruise or something goes wrong, they say, well, I just won't want to, I don't even go. That might be the night, the night you needed to go. Set your standards high. Too high. Well, that, I don't resonate, really. If I talked it, if I, did, if I yelled it, everybody gets excited. If I just say it, it okay. <laughs> Volume helps you. Here's, here's another portion. I love this. God calls us to the same zeal for righteousness and premarital relationships. What exactly does that look like, he writes. For me and many other people I know, it has meant rejecting typical dating. I go out with groups of friends. He said, I avoid one-on-one dating because it encourages physical intimacy. Hmm. Places me in an isolated setting with a girl. He writes, can I handle it? Don't I have self-control? Yeah, maybe I could. But that's not the point. God says... Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who are called of the Lord out of a pure heart. It's a great, it's page 96, 95 and 96, wonderful. When you get to it, you can come and highlight portions that I have. I don't even know if we have this in the bookstore. Can I just read a little book report? It's a wonderful book. I have to skip ahead for the sake of time. We're already on chapter 14. I feel... So lost, I wish we could just go back. Here's what he said. Character qualities and attitudes that matter most in a life partner. This is really why I read this chapter. It's terrible. What matters at 50? What matters at 50? 
I thought there was a book for kids. I'm offended. You don't know nothing about this, do you, Tammy? Been lying about your age. I don't even know how old she really is. If she didn't start adding some numbers, Roman's going to catch up to her. It's weird. Yeah, I saw that woman riding on that Harley Davidson motorcycle. She, she had a big t-shirt that said, Born to Ride. She was a very old lady. Yeah, she was born to ride 150 years ago. She was born to ride. She wasn't born to ride right then. Past 50. I don't know what she's talking about. Grow up, man. Act your age. You know, 80-year-old lady ought not be wearing no mini skirt. I just want to tell you right now, something's wrong with that. Oh, veins popping out. Come on now. Just cover your body up. Help me. I'm preaching. Page 175, what matters at 50? Oh, yeah. To cure this tendency, I've created a little game. When I meet a beautiful girl, I'm tempted to be overly impressed by her external features. He writes his words. I'm just reading this to you. I try to imagine what this girl will look like when she is 50 years old. If this girl is with her mother, the game doesn't leave much to the imagination. Right there, Paige. This girl may be young and pretty now, but what happens when the beauty fades? Does anything within her beckon to me? Is it her character that radiates and draws me toward her? Or is it the fact that her summer dress shows off a little too much of her tan? So what if her feminine outline captures my eye today? Now, I have a little decency, Tammy, so I won't read the next line in full. Plus, I don't want to hear about it when we get home. <laughs> Smart. That's what happens when you're 50. You learn, you learn not to be dumb completely. It's stupid. There's other stuff you can imagine. When pregnancies... And the effects of it, that's my words, and the years at extra pounds, when all that happens, will something in the girl's soul continue to attract me? That's a powerful book right there. Man, oh man. That's the book right there. I, I like that book. You mamas and daddies should get that book. I kissed Dayton goodbye. Because what are you going to do after you get done kissing? And then how are you going to kiss? You don't even speak a foreign language. <laughs> but you're kissing one. <laughs> uh-huh. 
I'll just, <laughs> I'll just quote you the song title of the country musician who said, oh, please forgive me, Lord. Get your tongue out of my mouth because I'm kissing you goodbye. <laughs> Joshua Harris, ladies and gentlemen. He got a high standard. He got convictions. He got boundaries. Listen to this, young people. He got boundaries. This is a good book. It's a challenging book. It's a good read. You ought to buy one. If you need help, I'll highlight the important paragraphs. It's a good book. Nothing wrong with this book. I just want to stand up and tell you, this is a right book. It speaks against homosexuality and premarital sex. It promotes a man and a woman waiting until they're married to have sexual relationships. This is a good book. It's marketed to teenagers and 20-somethings, but we also found out that it could be marketed for older people too. It discourages relationships and it promotes courtship. A process where couples move purposely toward marriage with their parents' blessing, I'm reading from it, and involvement of their parents as a better alternative to dating. And it, and it says any kind of physical intimacy before marriage, the book argues against it as a violation of the sacredness of marriage sexuality and it leads to a lifetime of regret that's in this book it's true he promotes it and the book was written in 1997 man that's so last century dear god have times changed when the man that brought conviction and sold thousands and thousands of books haven't times changed? You see, with Joshua Harris now, he got married, but his marriage didn't work out, and he just got a divorce. And what brought him to prominence has now given him a platform to denounce the very convictions that he once wrote. And I quote from this author a brand new statement. He said, Well, I like my book. My thinking has changed significantly in the past 20 years. I no longer agree with the central idea that dating should be avoided. I now think dating can be healthy. Relationships, it's okay. There are other weaknesses too. In an effort to set a high standard, the book emphasizes practices, not kissing before marriage, and concepts like giving your heart away to God. In trying to warn people of the potential pitfalls of dating, he said, I, I, I put fear, and I'm sorry about putting fear. I might have hurt someone. The book probably gave an impression of a methodology of a relationship. To those who read my book and were misdirected or unhelpfully influenced by it, I'm sorry about my book. I didn't intend to hurt you. I know this apology doesn't change anything for you. It's coming too late, but I want you to know I regret my book. And the restrictions of it. If I hurt you in your own view or your own sexuality. And someone wrote in the book 
and he read it and regretted. Lisa Michelle wrote on her Twitter that same day, I blame books like this and exhausting archaic thinking about sexuality for bad relationships with husbands today and wives. She said I was sex shamed. Joshua Harris left his church. He left his wife. And now he demonstrates his support for the gay community, the LBGT community, by marching. He just marched in August 4th, this last week. He marched in Vancouver's annual Pride Parade. After he announced, I'm no longer a Christian. Harris announced on Instagram, July 26th, by all the measurements that I have defined for a Christian, I am not a Christian. I don't know him. The culture has changed. The community has changed. I don't know him. I used to believe this, but I don't know it anymore. I, I got by the fire. They accused me. They said I shamed them and I put fear in them. So I kind of changed my view a little bit. Now, now I think it's okay. Now I think you can kiss and you can have sex and you can do whatever you want to because I don't know him anymore. I used to believe in truth and holiness and righteousness, but, you know, the world has changed a lot. You know, there's a lot of new things going on out there. You, you're kind of archaic. You live in the old age. You ought to get into the new century. I want to stand up and say right now, you're going to have to make a decision, and that decision is going to be pressed on you by the world. You ought to stand up and say, I'm still going to hold on to truth and righteousness. no you don't you don't get to backslide and go home and stay in your house and act like you're a Christian and say you still believe in God you taught us differently you told us differently you don't get to divorce you don't get to marching gay pride parades and say that everybody's okay no you don't oh no you don't Oh, no, you don't, Mom and Dad. You brought us to church. You told us there was only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You don't get to suddenly change your mind because you think the world has changed. Oh, no, you don't get to do that. Hey, oh, no, you don't, preacher. You preacher, you preach the word of God. You don't get to change your mind now and say, that was old news. Now we've been enlightened. Oh, no. Oh no, now you don't get to change your convictions suddenly because the world has pressed against you. Don't you know you're going to be hated by the world? And I want to tell you, I don't think you get the choice now. Too late, honey. I'm sorry, it's too late. You've spent one too many Sunday nights hearing the Holy Scripture. You've been taught about being born again. You've been born again of the water and the Spirit. And you know the way of righteousness is too late. I already know you've got convictions. I know you've got convictions. Who has a conviction right now? Raise your hand if you have any biblical convictions about God. Put your hand right up in the sky and say, I've got convictions. God gave those to you and you don't get to change them now suddenly because you think the world has been evolving and now you've evolved and now you've gotten a little bit better now you think a little bit greater no you don't think anything better than what you used to think hear me you didn't, you're not going to think any better thought than what the thought was given to you when you first found the Lord oh yeah see the Bible says According to God, 
He doesn't excuse people who don't know. Acts 17. And the times of this ignorance. God closed his eye. He winked at it. He, he, he let it pass. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that had raised him from the dead. Before the cross of Calvary, you were living in an Old Testament covenant. But when Jesus died, the death of the testator ushered us into a new reality. It was a reality of the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection, which is the gospel. And now we don't get to change it. See, you know too much to walk away. If you walk, if you decide to leave, you'll have to radically leave. (laughs) See, people who backslide almost always tell you that they're not backslidden. They never, backsliders never say, I'm a backslider. They'll say, I just believe in God a different way. I used to believe this now I kiss (laughs) I used to believe this but you know listen God made people different and as long as you love someone it doesn't matter as long as you love them as long as you're happy it doesn't matter I want to tell you right now that's against the word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament And when you change your thought, here's what you're saying. I don't know him. I don't know him. I never knew him. I have no relationship with him. And you'll run toward the things of the world. You will create your own version of Pentecost. You'll point out hypocrisies and hypocrites in the church just to justify your new position. Oh, it happens every day. You'll say words that you never used to say just to join the group that society has lifted up. And if you speak his name, you're hateful. You'll take on their look, their thought, their disposition, their attitude, and their language. You'll apologize to those around you for standing up for things you once stood for. I'm sorry. It was repressive. All that Sunday night church, that was not necessary. You're giving and you're tithing, that's not necessary. Going to a building, well, I'm the church wherever I am. That's, that's, that's where the church is. Buildings are archaic. We don't need to do that. In fact, people don't even read the Bible. Then, then all of a sudden you'll denounce and say, I'm sorry that we used to go there. And grown men and women have apologized to their children. And said... I'm sorry that I raised you in an apostolic church because I put on you yokes that you were not meant to bear. And they'll denounce the very thing that they once taught us as truth, righteousness, and holiness. And in essence, all those words mean I don't know him. And you'll look at the church and you'll say, I don't know them. I don't identify with them. And then you'll, listen, and then you'll do your best to change your look. So that you don't look like the person you used to purport to be. 
You'll be pressed to do it. Why? Because you got to identify with the accuser that's pointing you out in the darkness. Can I just read one more scripture? I'm almost done. I'd like to go back to this book. We were having so much fun. Some of you people ought to buy this. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. Just keep that on the board. Because the defining of the church is not miracles. It's the name that separates us from the world. And it's holiness that makes us distinct from the world. Jesus said, you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Why do you think they won't pray anymore in all of our colleges in the name of Jesus? Didn't you read the bulletin? Did you read the bulletin two weeks ago? Who read the bulletin two weeks ago? Three weeks ago? No? Cancel the bulletin. We're done. <laughs> We're done. I'm tired of writing. <laughs> In fact, Lori, put the... Lori, where you at, Lori? Lori, are you in this building? No, they're gone. Oh, I know, they're gone. It's a wrong time. Every time I call somebody's name, they're gone. Do not miss when I'm going to call your name. Somebody tell Lori, just put the same writing in the bulletin every week. It was so much better. The distinctiveness is the name. You'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Not for tongues. What? Not for clapping. Not for demonstrative praise. A lot of people do that. In fact, a lot more people do it more often than we do it. You'll be hated for my namesake. And then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, because Paul was just the writer, he was not the author. Paul was just hearing the dictation of the Lord who said, come out from among them and be separate. Be separate from the world. See, miracles do not distinguish us. Neither signs or wonders. Because watch this. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, he's got this with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Satanic power presented by Paul reflects the counterfeit nature of the lawless one. Three terms that are usually associated with the miracles of Jesus. Power, signs, wonders, miracles were selected by Paul. They're describing a false satanic, satanic miracles, lying wonders performed Performed by the man of sin. You see, you can denounce this and have a power, but it's not godly power. And have insight, but it's not godly wisdom. And have followers, but they're not followers of Jesus Christ. And when you get to that point and you leave this house, you will say, by you, you may not utter it out of your mouth, but this is what your life is saying. I don't know him. I never knew him. I got no relationship. Oh, I, I barely remember. I used to go there. I used to sing in the choir. But I've grown up now. 
I've evolved. That's so 1997. I say to you now, someone's going to come to you in the night and all the other people are going to stand around and they're going to say, are you an apostolic? Do you speak with other tongues? You mean, you, you gibber jab? You, you? Someone is going to ask you and it's going to be uncomfortable. You mean, you don't do this and that? You don't go there? Someone's going to ask you, you mean, you mean, you give, you serve? And then they're going to say, you're pressed down. You're bound up. You don't need to do any of that. That's nonsense. Come over with us. We still love God. Our church doesn't teach against that. We're saved. And when it's over, you'll say, I don't know him. I never knew him. What about all that stuff you wrote? And now, I didn't show you all the pictures of the profound man who led two generations in courtship, who with his words and insight saved countless young people from closets filled with skeletons. And now, he stands in Vancouver with a gay pride shirt on and he's eating a rainbow donut and he's asking people to forgive him because he told them about Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. If you can, I don't know. I don't know, it's not just young people, it's all, it's all of you. It's you, Brother Larry. It's you, Brother Mike. Brother Sean, this is you. You say, come what may. No matter how much the world changes or how much pressure I feel. Jason, Brother Jason, hear me. No matter how many times I'm accused, I'd rather suffer a little bit with the Lord, maybe a lot. than to go back on the revelation that he gave me. I'd rather lose my job. Not get the promotion because I won't go drinking while they're all playing golf. It happens many times. I'd rather not get the promotion and stay in a low-level job than to give up what God gave to me. Because if I give up the truth, I gave up myself. So I say, hold fast. Contend for the faith that was once delivered. Contend. Love the sinner, but contend for the faith. Reach the world but don't be like the world and if they ask you 
Aren't you one of those? You say with bold humility, yes, I know him. I have a relationship with him. He saved me. I've seen miracles. I've seen people delivered. You tell them. They don't know this. You tell them. And you light, your, you light that flame of fire so, so powerfully. Let it glow. And if they denounce you and they shun you at your job or your school, your neighborhood, or even in your family, you stand up and say, there's only one way. Say it. I know him. I'm not going to leave him. I'm not going to lose my relationship with him. Not in the night. Not in this night. I'm not going to lose my relationship with him. Oh, now I feel the commission of the Holy Spirit to call for all those who would come and say, I'm committed to you, Lord. I want to know you. I want to know you more and more. I want to know you. I need you. You got to say it out of your own mouth. No matter what the pressures of the society are, no matter what they bring to me, I must know him. I do know him. Somebody say it out of your mouth right now. This is who I am. It's who I am. I'm humbled by it. It's who I am. It's not what I do. It's who I am. It's who I am. I am a worshiper. I'm a discipler. I'm a disciple. I'm not giving up my testimony. I won't give up my worship. I'm not giving up my Sunday for a Friday. I'm not giving up my church for the world. I'm not giving up temporary pleasure for eternal life. No way. No way. I know him. Yes, I know him. Come on, somebody lift up your voice right now. The Holy Ghost is in this house. He's calling for you even this night.